Welcome to the Huntsback Country Podcast. This is episode number 442, and we are continuing in our series where we're speaking directly with game and fish agencies from several of the western states, and today up we have Idaho. Our guest is Toby Boudreau. He has actually joined us in previous episodes where we've talked about wolf management and other topics in Idaho, and there will be a link in the show description to that previous episode. Today, we talk about Idaho and get an update on the recent non-resident tag sale, the status of deer, elk, the management of wolves, the status of grizzly bears, and a whole lot more. We cover so much in here, e-bikes, just all kinds of stuff. So if you have any interest in hunting Idaho, almost regardless of species or season, there's something in here for you. As always, I hope you are enjoying these episodes as much as we have benefited from them. And if you have any questions for us, send an email to podcast at exomongear.com. We'd love to hear from you and consider answering those questions on a future episode. Right now, let's dive into this conversation with Toby Boudreaux. Toby, welcome uh, back to the podcast. Thanks for joining us again, as you have in the past. And for listeners, we will have links to the previous shows that we've done with you. But for people who maybe didn't catch those previous episodes, Toby, can you just go ahead and provide some information, context for who you are, what you do with uh, Idaho Fish and Game, and anything you want to share about your background as well? Sure, Mark. Thanks. Um, my name is Toby Boudreaux, and I am the statewide deer and elk coordinator for Idaho Fish and Game. I'm stationed in Boise, um, and uh, I've been a biologist for over 30 years um, in Idaho, and uh, I first started out in Alaska. And I have uh, another uh, another task on my plate other than Deer and elk, and that is, uh, I work on grizzly bear policy issues because I have a long history working on grizzly bear stuff. So, um, <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's a good job, and uh, I enjoy uh, I enjoy what I do. Quick derailment there. What's with grizzly bears? What's what's going on? What's news as far as Idaho is concerned? As far as Idaho is concerned, um, we are working on what's called the conservation strategy right now for the greater Yellowstone, um, an update. We wrote the conservation, or yeah, the conservation strategy has been updated several times. Of course, the last time was in 2021 when we um, updated uh, the way that they estimate grizzly bear populations. And uh, before that, it was done in 2016. So basically, the conservation strategy is the management plan of how bears will be managed after delisting. So this is a pre-delisting sort of document. And um, obviously, as you guys well know, there is, uh, you know, there have been petitions by Montana, Wyoming, and Idaho uh, all to delist grizzly bears in the in different parts or the whole. So yeah, it's um we're moving the ball forward and that's always a good thing. And uh, you know, hopefully at some point in the future, um grizzly bears will be delisted in the places where they're fully recovered and we'll manage them appropriately. Hmm. 
Is there a just? I'm sure it's a fairly small population, but an estimate for what we have spilling over into Idaho. Yeah, we have about 200 bears. Um, okay. Basically, 100 to 100, right around 100 in the Panhandle. Uh, basically, in the Selkirks and the Cabinet Mountains. Uh, basically, in Unit One, although they're spilling over into into other places now. And then we have about a hundred uh, that have moved over and grown into Idaho from the Yellowstone ecosystem. So, yeah, it's uh, it's quite a success story. I mean, you think about in 1973, there were a hundred and 38 bears left in the Yellowstone. And I think last year's population estimate, which the new one will be coming out here shortly, but last year's population estimate was 965 within the what they call the de designated monitoring area. And outside of that, there's bears, there's there's even more bears. So it's it's pretty amazing. And, uh, you know, all the states are working really hard to manage conflict um, along with, uh, you know, the Fish and Wildlife Service, whose basic grizzly bear management is their purview right now because they are an endangered species, a threatened species. Mm -hmm. I'm sure this is part of what you're working on uh, within Idaho, but how does a population estimate of 200 compare to what you think the objective maybe from a population perspective that's a great question what they look at for population recovery is is the entire area so basically um in fact we're sort of <clears throat> negotiating and going through the public a little bit of a public process with the conservation strategy to talk about what is our management goals for for you know for in perpetuity recovery of bears. So basically, you know, the science says that there needs to be somewhere between four and 500 for genetic diversity, basically within the population. And, you know, like the greater Yellowstone, you know, the, there's a whole, I, I guess I, I have to preface this by saying there's a whole bunch of different views from the public and NGOs and agencies on where that population should be. But really, I mean, it's about having a population level that's sustainable over the long term that has a really low chance of uh, you know, genetic inbreeding and, um, you know, enough females to, um, you know, keep the population going. And, and one of the interesting things about the Yellowstone is that in about 2006, the data started to show that there were uh, less cubs every year. Um, and what that was actually showing a sign of is that the population was getting to a point where cub production was being suppressed from bears themselves. It's called density dependence. And basically, as a population grows and gets to a point where they filled up their habitat, um, you know, they, ba they basically, the density of bears themselves start to limit themselves. So, um, so we saw that in 2006 and it's been, bear population has been slowly going up since 2006, but, you know, 
between like the 90s and 2006, it was that it was growing at a much greater rate. And we saw that sort of inflection of the population. And so from a biological standpoint, uh, we've been recovered for quite a while. Hmm. That is fascinating. I don't, I don't want to use the term because it may be too strong, but a little bit of like self-regulation, it sounds like. Yeah. Yep. It absolutely is. And, uh, you know, the, and it's been documented in a lot of places where there's a whole lot more grizzlies than in Idaho and Montana and Wyoming. But we're definitely, I mean, I think that it's safe to say that the greater Yellowstone grizzly bear population is one of the most in-depthly studied bear populations in the entire world. And to be able to even measure that inflection and see it in data is pretty incredible. And that just goes to show that, you know, we do have a good handle on what's going on. And, um, and we know that it's time to delist those bears and hopefully we can move through that process and, and hopefully get that done in the next few years. I sure hope so. The major roadblocks, the delisting, I mean, obviously it's a, it's a political process, but is there political agendas? Is it public perception slash misinformation? Like if you were to say the kind of the bigger variables that need to be overcome for delisting, is it just a matter of time and process or are there other things that are roadblocks or challenges for it? Oh, oh, definitely. I mean, it is a complex issue. I mean, it is, first off, you're dealing with something that, you know, we in the, in the business refer to as charismatic megafauna. You know, people, they, they, you know, people are fascinated by bears and, um, and people who have never had to live with bears love them. You know, they, you know, you look at the, you know, everybody that follows the famous bear, um, near you know outside of jackson has the number and uh you know every year they're following it taking pictures seeing how many cubs it has 399 is the number and you know it's just people are fascinated by bears so yeah i mean there's a whole continuum of of views and and uh and values on bears and um then you have kind of the other end of the spectrum of you got the people that live with them you got the people who had to you know, erect uh, eight foot high fence around whatever they want to protect because, you know, there's bears walking there. And, you know, finding that balance, I think, is the most important with bears. And, you know, I have to hand it to the public that they've done an amazing job of letting bears be bears. And that's why it's grown. That's why the population has grown so well. And uh, I think it's time that, you know, the states be allowed to manage those bears uh, in perpetuity. I'm glad we took that detour. I'm glad that came up. We had yeah, me too. one question about grizzly bears that I wanted to get to later, but uh, we answered that question a lot more and I enjoyed it. Thanks, Toby. Shifting yeah. gears, uh, we've been, as we do these with all the state agencies, we've kind of started with different questions, topics, et cetera, related to 
tags, applications, et cetera. And for a lot of these states, as the podcasts are coming out, they're either in or beginning to enter into kind of like application season, uh, whether that's for residents, non-residents, or for both. Obviously, we're at a, a unique time with Idaho right now as this conversation's happening and as this podcast is released where for non-residents, the general tag sale had already happened in December. Uh, and of course, there's still some applications ahead for trophy species, um, for limited uh, entry stuff for residents, et cetera. But in terms of uh, the general tag sale, obviously it's been uh, a topic of contention and questioning and everything else for hunters for the last handful of years as demand has increased for Idaho. And of course we had questions around it. I'm Before we get that any specific questions, Toby, do you, I don't know if it's would be maybe helpful for you just to share an update of anything of anything that has changed, any takeaways from this tag sale this year, anything in the works being considered, et cetera, I guess kind of an open floor on that topic. And then maybe we can follow up with some of the specific listener questions we had. Yeah, great. So um, I, I can tell you that, you know, obviously the the time the time that it takes to sell all of our tags has definitely shrunk um, since we started limiting uh, non-residents to individual uh, game management units for deer. And definitely, um, I think that, you know, there's some psychology lessons in there that I'm not a trained psychologist, so I won't try to interpolate, but, you know, that I think it's the, uh, you know, it, it's, there, there's been an increased interest in coming to Idaho since we started limiting things. And I think that uh, that has been very interesting. Um, you know, I think- It's fascinating. Some, <laughs> yeah, this past year, um, this past year, I think our, our December 1st sale went uh, very well. Um, you know, nothing, uh, there were no huge glitches in the, in the system. So that was, that was good. Um, you know, obviously um, there are, there are people who are upset. There are people who try to, you know, do things to um, quote unquote game the system. And uh and, and we are, we actually do have a small group internally that is working on kind of the future of solutions. And there's a whole, obviously, there's a myriad of things. Um, none of the, not, many are discussed and none have so far been put in place. But, you know, I think that it's, uh, I mean, from a business standpoint, and, you know, obviously you guys are businessmen, you know, Having, um, you know, people desire your product is is a good thing. Um, and, you know, I, I think the other thing that has, you know, people have perceptions about the fact that we've increased the number of non-residents that come to Idaho, and that's absolutely not true. The, the number of non-resident tags that we've had available for deer and elk has been the same for at least 30 years. I know it's been the same for the last 19 years I've worked for the agency, and I know it's been past that. It used, it's uh, 15,500 deer tags and 12,800 
change for elk tags. So that number hasn't changed. What has changed is the desire for people to come and hunt. And, you know, I think some of it has to do with what other states are doing also. I mean, other states are raising their their um, their costs. Other states have point systems that, you know, people either either choose to enter into or, or not want to. And, uh, you know, I, I think that I think it's a good thing that a lot of people want to come hunting, uh, no matter where it is in the West. And I, I think that uh, we will we will try to research and investigate different options um, for the future. How is that with the so the non-resident hunters? The number of tags hasn't changed. Obviously, there was an issue with congregating probably in certain areas certain units and i think a lot of that's online sources steering you know a lot of non-residents to a certain place how, how many years ago did we did you put in the 10 percent kind of cap was that three four years ago five years ago that was uh that was in 20 2020 is when 2020 yeah that uh changing that basically um, we, we changed distribution. We didn't change the numbers. And basically, we did people to a percentage of the number of residents in a unit. Now, you know, that is reevaluated every couple of years. So if more residents start hunting in, in, a, in the area, that could change. That could increase the number of non-residents tags for that unit. And if it Obviously, if the number of residents goes down, if the number of residents goes down in the unit, then that could actually negatively affect the number of non-resident sites available. So, gotcha. What's been feedback from residents on that? You know, I think that um, it's. I, I've got a lot of positive feedback from folks that said, "Yeah, the redistribution of the and the and the limiting in some of the units that." had them as you, you know, sort of indicated hot spotted uh in the literature and on social media. It's definitely uh they they they've appreciated it and it's helped. Yeah, we definitely had questions on that topic of if there was any indication, you know, whether it was direct feedback or from survey data of anything like that, of if that distribution had changed uh hunter satisfaction, but also if it had any effects on harvest rates or anything of that sort so is there any hard data you can apply to hey when we put this distribution in place it changed x y or z from a, a data perspective toby it's a great question I, I don't you know i can say that one thing that did that actually uh change um you know sort of the elk distribution elk tag distribution for sure uh, and again you know that that distribution formula only applies to the general over-the-counter uh, elk tags not the capped tags or the and it doesn't apply to controlled hunts controlled hunts are already limited so um as far as hunter satisfaction you know when we do um you know, sort of opinion and attitude surveys, we do send a percentage of them out to non-residents. And we have we have not done a one for deer or elk since uh, the change. 
um, but we have done some hunter congestion surveys with in partnership with the University of Idaho. And, um, you know, I think, uh, I don't think there was any difference in what people perceived as their level of crowding wherever they hunt between pre, uh, pre-limiting non-residents to certain game management units and post. But we're going to do that survey again, actually. Um, it should go out in a couple of weeks to a random selection of, of Idaho, um, of hunters who hunt in Idaho. And, uh, and I think that will we'll get a better idea and another another year's worth of data to look at and see, you know, if if people's perception of crowding is it's it's kind of interesting. I was uh, and I don't want to go down this rabbit hole too far, but it was uh, a colleague in another state told me a, a fantastic story about hunter crowding and they went in and and uh, changed a hunt from a general over the counter hunt to a controlled hunt. And when they did it, for some reason, they put the same number of tags in there that had been previous the previous five-year average. And yet, in a survey of hunters that had hunted that controlled unit, when it after it became a controlled unit, their perception was it was less crowded, even though there were the same exact number of people out there hunting. Back to psychology. <laughs> yep. Yeah, back to the psychology. Yeah. That's yeah, I think that the psychology. Yeah. If if anything, that's sometimes in conversations with other hunters, you know, there's such a it is such a perception that's not actually based in data. You know, guys have these really strong opinions about what the elk are doing or the deer are doing and how many hunters are here and there, and then you actually find look at the data and it's like, ah, it's like it's actually opposite of what you just said. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think some of the, you know, perception issues that people have is, you know, the amount of mobility people have nowadays. I mean, about how we got around even 20 years ago, and now everybody can not only take themselves, but three other of their best friends and drive 150 miles in one day to places that, you know, if you didn't have boots, you couldn't get there, you know, back in the back 20 years ago. And I think mm-hmm. seeing more people moving around, I don't think they're being, you know, I don't think success has changed, but it definitely has uh, affected uh, people's, you know, when you visually see another hunter, it, yeah. you, know, you, you take note of it. Whether you, mm-hmm. how you, what your reaction is after that is really up to you in the situation, but you, know, you definitely, I, I take note of it anyways. I, that's a great point. Like in this, goes back to psychology again but seeing people being mobile whether that's trucks at a trailhead you know a side-by-side a quad somebody you know on a mobile path like a regardless of form versus actual hunting pressure if you are out on foot in the midst of the hunt can be two very different things and not always connected you know i've certainly had that experience where you pull up somewhere you're driving a road and it's like man there's so much traffic on this road or so many trucks at this trailhead or you know this spot what have you but continuing to hunt an area anyway that pressure can dissipate quickly and not really affect your hunt for sure so uh it goes back to like is that really hunting pressure you know is it really affecting your hunt maybe 
Yeah. And in certain cases it does for sure, but in certain cases it doesn't, but it, it plants that seed when you're seeing people being mobile or seeing vehicles, what have you. And, and I, yeah, and I think that's a great point, Mark. And I think the other thing is, is that, you know, there's a lot of people out there recreating that aren't hunting. Yeah. You, you see them out there and, you know, people have a, you know, perception of, you know, crowding, but it's, who knows? I mean, the people on the motorcycles and the e-bikes and the quads and the UTVs with four seats, a lot of them are just, I mean, just out joyriding, seeing the sights. You know, uh, yeah, it's, it's, there's, a, there's a lot of psychology to the hunting, a lot more than uh, I thought when I was, you know, taking my uh, formative education. Yeah. <laughs> uh, since you just said e-bikes, can you speak to that at all? I, I just seem to like, basically, if someone wants to use one, who do they go talk to? Um, Cause it seems like there's just different rules and regulations all over the place. Yeah, so uh, I guess the clearest answer would be to talk to the land management agency. So if it's okay. Forest Service, I would go to the Forest Service and ask them about their regulations on e-bikes and whether, you know, what where, where they can be actually legally used. So yeah. okay, okay. So fish and game would have no role in the use of an e-bike. I mean, because there is some areas right where you. Um, it, you know, say you, you have to go, can't, if you're going to use a motorcycle, I've been in these spots before where ride in, you have to establish a camp hunt and then you can hunt from there, but you can't just ride in hunt for the day and come out. Correct. Yeah. We, we do have those motor motorized hunt rule areas and, um, yeah, obviously an e-bike is one and it, yeah. applies, those apply, um, to those areas because it is, it is a motor as much as some people would argue that it's just a bicycle. Mm -hmm. So check with the land management agency first and then go cross check with Idaho fishing game. Then it's not a motor vehicle uh, restriction area. Yep. Yeah. That would be. Okay. okay. A couple very uh, direct questions, Toby, that kind of before transition, some other topics kind of fall under tag applications, availability, et cetera. Uh, I know the answer to this, but it came up and is worth discussing. For a non-resident, can you change the pre-selected free fishing dates when you purchase your big game license and or tags? Absolutely. Yep. All you have to do is call the fishing game office and we can make those changes for you on the fly. And I believe there's some verbiage somewhere, I believe during the tag sale on December 1st, or maybe when you just purchase your license in general, that even states uh, or recommends something along the lines of if you like pre-select dates for late in the year, so like essentially the end of that license year, and then you can always, as you said, Toby, contact Fish and Game and move those dates up. But what you wouldn't want to do is have those dates pre-selected early in the license year, potentially before your trip, which are then quote unquote used or expired because you can't move them later if that has elapsed essentially. That that's correct. So usually they you know they you know the the license uh vendors usually tell people to just put it as late as possible and then you move it. So. And then another very direct question that came through from a listener 
is there any anticipation of over-the-counter antelope tags in the near future? So Idaho's antelope population, give or take, is about 13,000 animals, and uh, all of our opportunity is controlled hunting. Um, I don't think there's any over-the-counter antelope hunting anywhere in the range where antelope live in the West. But so the answer, the quick answer is no. However, uh, we do have uh, what we call unlimited controlled hunts for archery antelope that people can get. Uh, all they have to do is apply. Excellent. Shifting gears from tags and applications and all that good stuff. We had quite a bit of questions along the topics of wolves in Idaho. And that's something you have a lot of experience with, Toby. We actually, one of the previous podcasts we did with you was on the topic of wolves in Idaho. So again, there'll be a link to that prior discussion um, in the show description for this episode. First, before we get into specific, there was just kind of a general question of how is the management of wolves going in Idaho? So I guess an open floor, Toby, if you want to talk about any trends, changes, what you're seeing in the last handful of years, or what may be changing and we're coming soon for Idaho. You know, Mark, it's interesting. Wolf management really started in 2009 um, when we got our first hunting season. And then in 2010, it was closed by, uh, by litigation and then opened back up by congressional uh, by congress uh, through an appropriation writer uh in 2011 and, and in 2011 we added trapping and you know i think that you know idaho is doing a, a good job of managing wolves obviously um if you get the sportsman's back you get a wolf tag and uh we sell quite a few wolf tags in idaho and i think that uh you know, we've added trapping, trapping and incrementally increased the areas that you can trap in. And trapping is having, and you know, is, you know, harvesting wolves. So it's, uh, I, I think it's, go, it's going along nicely. I mean, the, the, the hard part with wolves, as we talked about in the past, is that, you know, they have incredible reproductive rates. I mean, we're talking about, you know, the, you, you can, you know, moving the population in one direction or another is, uh, or down specifically is, 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 is a task because they, they have incredible ability to reproduce. And, um, and that, that's really a, a giant challenge as far as, how Idaho's, uh, you know, we, we just got a wolf plan um, finished and we have, uh, you know, set forth our plans for, you know, obviously for the next five, six years for managing wolves and nothing, nothing crazy has happened or there are no big plans for any changes uh, to how we manage wolves. Obviously, using hunters and trappers um, is our first option. And obviously, we also have the ability to contract with uh, 
APHIS Wildlife Services for wolves that are causing um, livestock damage. And we do that. And it is, um, you know, it, it's, it, it's, it's going to be a challenge. I think that, uh, I think there are some places that, you know, wolves will always be. And, you know, there's places that wolves, you know, will come in, come through on their way somewhere else. Uh, and you might see one, but because of conflict issues, probably won't establish themselves um, in any in any great numbers. You know, I think as, as far as, uh, you know, wolf hunting goes and for people who are, you know, coming to Idaho, I would definitely say the most important thing is to have a tag in your pocket. And the second thing is, uh, you know, be patient. You know, you might hear wolves and I've, I've had it happen myself. I mean, I was deer hunting a few years ago and a wolf started howling and I spent, I don't know, an hour, uh, you know, glassing to see if I could even see the wolf. I, it was a big canyon, it was big canyon country. I never did actually see the wolf. So it's, uh, it's, it's pretty incredible. You know, you, you think about, we sell about 50,000 wolf tags to hunters in Idaho, and yet we take oh, a little over 200. Um, wow. Hunting. So, you know, half of 1%. Uh, and, and really, it's about being in the right place at the right time. There are people who have focused their skills and focused their um, opportunities to hunt wolves, and, and they do okay. But, you know, we still have you know, like this year, for example, you know, out of the uh, 207 wolves that have been harvested to date, 95 of them were harvested um, by, by one person uh, taking one wolf. And, uh, you know, 131 individuals took 207 wolves. And so most people get one is the, is the bottom line. Very few people get more than that. Uh, they're incredibly hard to hunt. Um, you know, I've got stories from other places, uh, you know, Alaska, but, you know, wolves are just from the ground. They, they are challenging, challenging animals to hunt for sure. And I think the best way of getting them is to, you know, have that tag in your pocket. Well, if we're only harvesting 200 a year, are, is the population steadily growing then? Oh, I'm sorry. We're, we, that's this year. Um, okay. Average, um, over the past few years, we've we've harvested somewhere between 440 to 585. Okay. Okay. So, um, I would say that the population is 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 at some you know stable. Um, in, in some sort of state of stability um, in most mm -hmm. places. We do uh, do a annual um, wolf estimate and it's a summer estimate. And I think this will be the fourth year of that estimate coming through. We haven't got the, uh, the final numbers yet, but you know, the first two years, so it came in right around 1500 and last year it was, uh, a little over 1300 so um 
it did show some decline in the population. However, you know, it's the only, we're the only state that has a bounded estimate, and that means bounds as in like uh, confidence intervals, like if you have a point estimate of a thousand and the confidence intervals are thirty-five percent, it would be you know sort of thirteen fifty to you know six fifty to thirteen fifty would be the confidence interval, uh, the total the total interval, the population somewhere in between. We think the point is somewhere like, and I'm just giving you throwing out numbers mm -hmm. thousand mm -hmm. to sort of explain the confidence interval thing. So when you look at a at Idaho's wolf estimate, you know, there are there are the bounds on, in which we know it's between X and Y. We think it's somewhere in the middle right there. Um, Got it. So, and it takes, uh, we use photos from 800 cameras to, uh, to gather that data. And we are working on finding some potentially new opportunities to, uh, you know, integrate genetic information and harvest into that estimate to refine it even further. So we, we are still working on trying to uh, make that better. Very cool. Some follow-up direct listener questions on this topic. One, will Idaho consider nighttime hunting of wolves? It's already done. Is it? We have uh, a bunch of different places in the state where um, wolves are, um, where you can hunt wolves at night. Uh, basically, you need to go into a regional office and fill out a single page form. And uh, and basically, yeah, uh, we've had very little success so far in that, in that method being used. Um, I think the most wolves taken with with night vision um, tools would be three in one year. Um, so, yeah, but you can already do it. You just need to go to a regional office and get a permit. And uh, it allows the use of uh, lights and thermal imagery um, or night vision. I'm, I'm not an expert on that. Yeah. Although I would buy a pair of thermal binoculars for another project and uh if you haven't ever checked them out they're pretty cool yeah they are very cool i've done some stuff with uh some military units and got to experience it and it's pretty neat uh, and there's is much better than what we can buy <laughs> right yeah one question was has idaho correlated above objective wolf numbers with any below objective elk numbers in specific areas well, I mean, we have places that, you know, there's several spots in the state that were below objective on all elk numbers. Some places were just below objective on on bulls. Um, and uh, obviously, you know, when you're in situations where you're below objective, you know, there are a lot of factors affecting it. I mean, we've got elk populations that are affected throughout the year by other predators, uh, by hunting. Um, and, and of course, the big elephant in the room is, is habitat. And we have places that, you know, like the area where the, the 1910 fires burned that made amazing habitat that 
you know, after the, they reburned in the 30s, they made amazing habitat for elk in, you know, the clear water portion of, of the state. And, you know, it, elk populations just took off in there. And since, you know, really, they started, we started doing research in the 70s as we saw elk populations starting to go down in places. Because, and it was primarily due to just a lack of habitat when you, when you guys go into a, what what most people commonly refer to as dark timber. I mean, what do you see on the ground? There's there's nothing for an elk to eat. Um, and when you have giant contiguous forests that make up, you know, that's 75% dark timber, it, it's hard, it's hard to, you know, hard to make a living if you're an herbivore. So I think we've got a lot of things at play obviously you know wolves are another predator um but i think that it's it's a lot more complex than pointing at one animal or another one question came through toby i uh i'd like to throw at you i i realize that there's no easy answer here it's complex it's outside of your jurisdiction and there's so many variables but i'm curious if you can provide any thoughts someone asked based on idaho's experience how do you think Colorado's introduction of wolves will affect hunting there over the next 10 years? Well, I mean, obviously, uh, you guys have hunted in places where there's wolves and it changes, it changes hunting. Um, you know, obviously, the, in places, elk seem to be a little bit more quiet. Um, you know, the days of, uh, you know, bugling bulls, you know, bugling their head off, it, uh, you know, that's sort of a, that's become a little bit of a double-edged sword, um, so to speak. So it will definitely affect hunting in some places. Um, you know, I, I think that uh, Colorado's, uh, you know, they've got an amazing amount of uh, prey biomass on the ground. They've done a great job managing wildlife there. And uh, obviously, putting a predator, a new predator in the system, um, will will change things. Um, how much it will change? Hard to say. I mean, obviously, Idaho has places where we have wolves and we have elk and we have deer, and other places where you know there's a few wolves and not many elk, and you know because of habitat issues. So. I think, um, you know, obviously, as as wolves expand their range um, in Colorado, it will affect people's hunting. But I I don't think it's going to, you know, it's it's not going to decimate things, at least from our experience. Shifting to some questions on deer, on mule deer. Uh, just again, some of these questions I'm I'm summarizing or kind of like condensing, but uh, essentially some questions that came through on what is the plan for mule deer management? Uh, are Idaho numbers lower than objective across the board? So again, there was there was a lot of general questions that let's just start with more of an open floor and an update on both herd health numbers and future management, maybe in response to. The health and numbers. 
Sure. So that's great to write right up my alley, actually, something I work on daily. Uh, I, I think that, uh, you know, we wrote, so I've been working for this agency for basically uh, just about 19 years, and we wrote uh, the first meal deer plan that, in my experience here, uh, in 2007, we updated that plan in uh, 2000. 19 and we we are on track actually to rewrite the meal deer plan in 2020 starting in 2025 you probably finish it in 2026 you know i think that uh, mule deer are such an iconic species it's it's you know it's it it's amazing to find you know it's not hard to find a, a hunter um who is passionate about mule deer? I mean, they're they're amazing critters. You 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 don't, based on my experience and talking to a lot of hunters and and being out mule deer hunting, you don't even need to harvest a big mule deer as long as you see one that 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 often is good enough, which is which is pretty incredible. And I think um, you know, first off, I guess with our current plan, we don't have statewide population objectives for mule deer. Um, we obviously monitor mule deer um, pretty intensely south of the Salmon River in Idaho, where, where, where you can with, with helicopters on a regular basis. And, you know, I think that Idaho mule deer numbers uh, were doing very, very well up until uh, the winter of 22-23, which um, was tough on them. I mean, we saw in the Southeast region, you know, lots of mortality. In fact, we're going to be flying uh, that, that what we call a, a deer DAU, which is the data analysis unit that basically goes from Utah to Idaho Falls along the Wyoming border. And we're going to be flying that this year to sort of look at what was the effect uh, in total deer numbers uh, from that for last year's winter. And, and I think that, you know, one of the hard parts about mule deer management is, is they are affected by weather. You know, elk, um, obviously, we, you know, they, they can be affected by weather, but mule deer, it's one of the biggest levers that the mother nature can pull on, on deer is, is weather. And I mean it in, in both ways, both heavy snow, cold winters, and dry summers. And we were just, uh, you know, we had come off of the 2016-2017 winter. We're just kind of rebuilding back up. And lo and behold, here comes 22-23. And, you know, it didn't decimate deer herds all over the state. It did most of its significant, you know, uh, it, you know effects were in the southeast and upper snake regions. You know, that's that's the reason uh, we have a uh, shed antler hunting season there, because we just want to keep people out of the hills as much as we can to give deer a break. Um, you know, we know that, you know, every time a deer has to run away from something, it's using up energy that it's put on in the summer. So the thing is, is that, you know, but other, way, other places in the state suffered at least 
some limitation. There were some limiting factors to last winter, even if it didn't necessarily kill them. <clears throat> you know, the next the next follow the year following a, a tough winter, even if you survive, you know, the chances of having less fawns instead of two having one or having instead of having one having zero. Uh, you know, having smaller antlers. Obviously, if you're putting all this energy into surviving, you don't have a whole lot of extra to put into, you know, the antlers that you carry as a buck. So, you know, I, I think that I'm optimistic. Obviously, this year has been a very favorable year to mule deer. Uh, super wet fall uh, or wet August and, and, and September. Deer stayed on summer range a lot longer than they than they usually do, which is which is great. Uh, meaning they, you know, all the deer that I talked to and saw, talked to hunters and saw at check stations had, you know, copious amounts of, of back fat on them, which is always a good indication of a good summer habitat regime. And um, so I think deer are doing really well. Um, obviously in some places their numbers were knocked back, but when they are on a good plane of diet and they are in good body condition, they will, they will, you know, produce more fawns and, uh, and the following year will be better. And, and this year, you know, we've gotten a little bit of snow, but, um, you know, so far, but I, I don't think it's been, there's, there's been no crushing weather as of yet which I hope we can resist and stay away from for this year because, you know, we, we do need, uh, we do need some rebuilding years here. And, uh, you know, it's, it, it is complex and it is uh, a difficult situation because, you know, when people get upset that we're not doing anything about, you know, big air quotes, not doing anything about deer management after we have a, a hard winter, <clears throat> You know, you, when you're in a situation of buck only hunting, you know, we had already since 2016, we had closed down all antlerless hunting in the southeast and upper snake regions. And actually, in the fall of 2022, we were actually proposing to bring that back. But obviously, when the winter came, we pulled that the public never saw those proposals because we were getting to a point where we could offer, you know, youth either sex hunting, you know. Uh, sort of thing, and uh, you know that just that just went away. But um, you know, when you do that, when you have buck only hunting, you know the the number of uh, you know it's not going to change the trajectory of the population to to continue to kill a limited number of buck. There were questions on considerations for implementing like a three-point minimum for general units that are struggling to produce mature bucks. Can you speak to point minimums, effectiveness, considerations for the future? Yeah, so uh, pretty pretty cool, actually. When I uh, came on with the agency, we had just started to um, four-point only uh, areas to look at, and they were, they were general areas, but they were four-point only and uh, to look at the effect of antler point restrictions and other states have had them before and you know unfortunately uh you know people think of you know a three-point minimum or four-point minimum but what that actually ends up doing is focusing the harvest on the very bucks you want to survive 
you know, we know from work that's been done in Utah, they, you know, in the past five years, they have gone gangbusters on on collaring the mule deer, doing a whole bunch of really good work. And one of the things they found is actually that yearling bucks, the two points that, you know, people see on the hills that, uh, you know, obviously if you're an ardent, uh, you know, mule deer hunter, you don't even, even notice it as a buck. Um, you know, they actually have a lower survival rate than, than older do. So, um, which is, which is sort of fascinating to me. And, but, you know, they, our experience of five years running, um, four point or better regulations, it did not, it did not do what the public hoped it would. What we ended up with was a lot of two points and a lot of big two points. Uh, actually, I remember sitting on a hillside in the Southeast region in one, one location with my binoculars, I could see eight two points that were all, you know, 18 to 20 inches wide um, because all the four points had been gleaned off. So the thing is, is that those antler point restrictions without limiting the number of people actually negatively impact as far as I'm concerned, the, uh, the composition of bucks on the hill. It makes complete sense. Yeah. That came up, um, in the conversation we had with Arizona for their episode and very similar. I think they actually indicated that Utah research as well, but essentially that for their objectives, they felt very similarly that on the surface, these point restrictions make a lot of sense to the public, but because of the way it concentrates harvest and then changes dynamics, it actually doesn't give you the result that you would expect. Yeah, and, and, and you know, Idaho did that experiment basically at the behest of the public who said, we, you know, we need to change this up. And then after five years, they're like, we need to change this up. Yeah. <laughs> what what unit or area was that experimented? Well, we did it in Unit 70 and Unit 78 in the southeast or no i'm sorry 73 and 70 were the two so yeah it was uh, it was pretty uh it was you know it was it was very interesting i believe you mentioned in passing in there and forgive me i don't remember exact words so i don't want to put any in your mouth but you mentioned something as we were talking about animal point restrictions versus just limiting harvest or limiting hunters. I, I forget which exactly, but would you say it's that's a simply more effective? Like we just need to reduce pressure as a whole, not reduce pressure on a targeted class or you know trophy level of species. And at the end of the day, that's going to produce better deer numbers and better mature bucks overall. It's just that overall reduction in pressure. Yeah, Mark. So the thing is, is that, you know, obviously, if you want to, you know, create opportunities to, you know, to, to grow seven and eight year old mule deer bucks, which, you know, are the, you know, really the peak of antler development in a, in a deer, um, you know, you have to limit the number of people significantly. And, you know, you look in, I, I look to other states and, you know, they've created, some other states have created, you know, incredible buck opportunities, but they had to cut 90% of the hunters out of the hunt to do that. Because, you know, you look at you know, the average mule deer population 
let's just say unit 39, just because it's right in our backyard here. Um, you know, it has seven, eight, nine thousand deer. Well, about ten percent of them after the hunt are are bucks. So we're we, we we don't you know we have a big population nine ten thousand deer, and ten percent of them are males. We only you know based on all the research that's been done over the last seventy five years, we only need five six maybe eight bucks per hundred does to keep all the, the 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 pregnancy rates as high as they possibly can so the thing is is that yeah you can you, you can reduce the number of does quite you can reduce the number of bucks quite a bit and still get pregnancy rates obviously that will increase the the number of you know younger bucks but um you know i, I think the I think it, for Idaho, it all comes down to the fact that time after time that we've done these hunter attitudes and opinion surveys about mule deer hunting is the most important thing to Idaho folks is actually being able to hunt every year. You know, you know, Idaho is such a you know great place for mule deer to live that it doesn't matter if we have general hunting in, in a lot of places. Um, we still can produce amazing trophy-sized bucks. Yeah, are they produced at a number that is super high? No, but every year somebody gets one. Uh, you know, there's a few gotten in, you know, pretty much every game management unit, even the general ones. And I think that, you know, trying to manage, and the most important thing is obviously we manage wildlife for the public. And when the public says going hunting every year, is better than waiting every 10 years to shoot or have the opportunity to you know harvest a, a mature buck and, you know that's sort of the direction that we've gone and i think it's i think it's great i think that uh, you know there are people who have drawn very hard to hunt uh you know controlled hunt tags and gone out and shot a forked horn and they were pleased as punch because for once in their life they got to hunt behind their house you know it, it, yeah, it's it's the balancing of trophy opportunity versus you know more general hunting opportunity. I think that I think that Idaho does a really good job of sort of maintaining most of it by Mother Nature's own uh, that the opportunity to see and harvest you know mature deer and let a lot of people go hunting at the same time. Yeah, that's always been my perception. If, if someone asks me about Idaho, it's just a great place to live because it's a it's an opportunity state. Like I can hunt a lot in a lot of different places for a good portion of the year, and you know, like you just said, there's there's a 180 inch buck probably in every unit in the state that um, there might not be a lot of them, but there, there's a chance to find one. Absolutely, and and I think that's what people live for. You know, it's funny, you know, talking to folks that live through the best of times in Idaho, which you know, uh, like is the I, I will say the last best of times was the late 80s, um, where, you know, we saw peaks all throughout the West and mule deer populations. And it was just, it was, it was amazing. And, uh, you know, you, you, you go to talk to those folks and they, they can tell you these stories and then they, they get that glisten in their eyes about big deer they saw. And they said, 
you know, I remember one guy in particular, he's like, yeah, you want to come over and see the bucks that I've harvested in my life? And the man was in his 60s. I was like, heck yeah. I went to his house and there were three, three on the wall. But, you know, and he lived through the best of times. It wasn't that he necessarily harvested a deer every year, but he saw them. Toby, if you have time, I know uh, we're coming up on time, but do you have time to talk about bears a little bit? Yeah. Excellent. Uh, so I guess similar, just with deer, we can just kind of start with a general update and then uh, maybe get into any specific questions that came through. So again, just a general update on any trends, any management changes, just kind of an outlook on bear population. And here we're talking black bear. We did obviously earlier talk about the grizzlies a bit. Yeah, so Mark, what we're doing right now is actually um, rewriting the black bear management plan. It last was uh, updated in 1999. So um, part of that process was actually putting out a survey and uh, and and you know we put out a survey and there was a lot of misperceptions with the survey questions um you know obviously it's been a while since we managed since we wrote a new management plan for bears and you know going out to the bear hunting public i think is you know essential thing in when we're formulating how to how to move forward if there's going to be any change at all and i i think that uh, you know the survey uh, caused a bunch of consternation with uh, a bunch of public. And um, I think everybody that received that first version of the survey also got a letter that said, um, we're going to redo the survey and we're going to send out a new copy to everybody with different questions and uh, not try to uh, create any level of uh, hysteria uh, more than another. So I think that all the people out there that did receive a uh, a black bear survey from Idaho um, most likely have received the letter, and uh, they will be getting a new survey in the in the in the near future. So, you know, as far as black bears numbers go, I think um, you know Idaho has got great bear numbers. I think that uh, it's an it is an amazing state to come and be able to spot and stock or um, you know go out with somebody that has uh, pounds or uh, hunt over bait so it's um, a lot of opportunity i think the bear population is super healthy and and it's doing doing really well you know one of the things that has come up uh, obviously with the public is the idea of the uh, where we have the discounted units and where we have the two bear units and um you know I, I think that it would be safe to say that it's expanded some people's opportunity i don't think it has uh, you know changed the trajectory of the bear population but when people can take two bears you know a, a chosen few do and um, you know i think it's uh, i think it's great that we can offer that opportunity in places where we're below objective and 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 people some people take advantage of it is the two bear units or reduced bear units is that how much of that is controlling excess bear population or trying to 
promote deer and elk populations? Well, I, I think it's um, in reaction to, you know, elk populations not meeting objectives. And we, okay. you know, in those places that we've basically written a predator management plan um, that encompasses, of course, all predators, uh, because we've got depressed elk populations, we have added that, you know, added opportunities for bears. So it is it is a reaction to uh, ungulate numbers. Absolutely. Okay, got it. So it's not necessarily the case that there's a bunch of bears running around. It's trying to control the bears bear numbers even further to help the elk. How much is there any real good data on like how many calves are killed every year by black bears or how much a black bear will kill? Um, there's a, there's a little bit of data actually, uh, in my former, uh, agency life, uh, in Alaska, I actually did a study with a few other, um, biologists and we actually looked at, uh, moose calves and looking at moose calf mortality and found that black bears were the number one, um, source of, uh, mortality for moose calves. And uh, at the time in the political climate, it was, uh, it was deemed that we could uh, go in there and move bears. And we took about a 500 square mile area in a two year period. We moved 124 bears, 12 of which of those 124 were grizzlies and the 112 were black bears. And, um, you know, we were able to show that moose calf survival to December, which is like not 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 recruitment but you know when we do the when when alaska does surveys or actually it's november to november you know went from 17 calves per 100 cows in three years went to 56 calves per 100 and and physically moved those bears so we put them in we darted them put them in airplanes and hauled them between 200 and 350 miles away uh, and release them unharmed. And, and it, it did help quite a bit. So as a, a resident hunter of the state, like if I want to help the elk population, going and harvesting a bear in springs, a, a very good thing to do. Yeah, and obviously um, there are bears that um, probably are better at, at mm-hmm. calves than others. Um, but, you know, we, you know, one of the things that we did as part of our research was, you know, we would go into, we have moose calves collared and, you know, anywhere between 67 and 85 moose calves in a, in a spring would be collared. And every time one would perish, we would go in and do an investigation of, you know, at the kill site. And uh, we actually used genetic information to identify, you know, that one of the bears that we ended up catching and moving, you know, removed five of the collared uh, calves. And, you know, we're, we're talking about hundreds of moose calves out there. And yet one of our collared bears took one of our, you know, or one of our bears that we caught actually ended up removing five of our collared calves. So yeah, there are, there are specialists. And, and actually we saw from the movement data that actually bears moved into this general area where moose were calving. Um, and I think it was specifically for that opportunity for uh, to prey on, on moose calves. 
That's fascinating. I'm still that the number of paths that you mentioned going from what would you say 17 to 56? That seems yep. like a dramatic increase in that period of time. It was, and you know, and, and one of the other things that we found was that wolves, although they were prevalent in the area, um, weren't affecting calves, they were affecting adults. Um, mm. so, uh, and we, it was a you know, pretty much a free predator system with a few grizzlies, mostly black bears and some wolves. Uh, yeah, it was uh, it was a dramatic increase in moose calf survival, and it was uh, it was amazing. It's an amazing piece of research, and and uh, and yeah, I think those similar things are happening in in Idaho in places, obviously, and um, you know, it's about a two or two-week period, three-week period when, you know, neonate fawns and calves are are um, are vulnerable. So it's a, it's a pretty short time, but definitely, uh, you know, bears focus on that time, at least in some places. So is there anything else? Uh, I mean, I have so many questions. We can keep talking for hours, which obviously we can't do, but... Anything else that you want to address, bring up, I don't know, correct misconceptions or just speak to in general while uh, you kind of have the ear of our audience here? You know, Mark, not really. Um, I think that, uh, you know, appreciate sort of the, you know, the, the subjects that we've talked about so far, obviously, um, just wanted to remind folks that we do have a shed antler closure from January 1st to uh, April 14th in the southeast and, and upper snake regions of Idaho. And that includes locating, um, you know, picking up, caching, all that stuff, not legal. And, uh, and uh, you know, and, and I think we're doing it for the best reason. And the other thing that I think is important to note is that this regulation is is really for emergency purposes. It's not going to be an annual thing in most places. Uh, it's only going to be when we have severe winters, the commission has the ability to, to close shed antler hunting uh, to give the animals a break when, when they need it and uh, not all the time everywhere. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure that was met with a lot of opinions and pushback. Um, yeah, but, we had about seventy uh, percent of the people that 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 gave us feedback support, uh -huh. uh, either support directly or support with some uh, concerns. The idea of a shed antler hunting season, obviously, you know, there's there's a whole bunch of views and opinions on it, and n nobody's wrong. I mean, obviously. Um, but it, uh, I think the most important thing is, you know, looking at animal welfare and animal health and, and trying to reduce the impact, at least by the public that we can impact. You know, we can't yeah. stop people from skiing and hiking and snowmobiling and all that stuff. Um, but, uh, you know, we can, we can, the department and the commission is doing what they can do with what they have available. And, that only came in place this year because the legislature passed a statute that allowed uh, the commission to then have um, 
basically uh, authority over antlers and um, deadheads, which they didn't they didn't have previously. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I mean, it's clearly you you guys are doing it in the best interest of your heart, and nothing's going to be perfect, um, or the best interest of the animal, right? Uh, it's not going to be perfect, but it's it's better than nothing. Uh, the deer population needs a break, and uh, yeah, it's going to yeah, be hard to regulate. And yeah, you, like I said, you can't stop every other outdoor activity, but it's yeah, something's better than nothing. Yeah, and you know, other states, Wyoming, Colorado, Nevada, um, you know, they all have shed antler um, seasons in in areas, and you know, they have data to show that it has you know allowed animals to move back into areas that they previously had sort of evacuated because of the amount of pressure. So, it, so there, there is some indication, although not absolutely empirical data, uh, that it does help. So anything we can do to help, I'm all for it. Yeah. Toby, thank you so much again for taking the time, your willingness to answer all these questions. And uh, yeah, looking forward to actually, not as this podcast is released, but as a recording, we'll see you soon here at Cheap Show. Well, thanks to Toby for joining us again. I hope that you guys enjoyed that episode. Stay tuned. There's more to come. To make sure that you receive future episodes, please hit subscribe or follow in whatever podcast app that you're using so that you receive those future episodes automatically for free. And if you are enjoying the show, it would help us tremendously if you can just take a minute, do it now, take a minute, leave a rating or review in whatever podcast app you're using. We don't do any advertising or external promotion of the show, so it simply grows by you sharing it with friends and leaving those ratings and review. And as always, if you have anything for us, send an email to podcast at exomountaingear.com.